If I haven't had the pleasure of saying hello in person yet, my name is Bruce Garner. I'm the senior pastor here at Crosspoint. Excited to open a new book of the Bible with you. We are starting Paul's letter to the Colossians. If you want to open your Bibles there, if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one near you under the seats. Uh, feel free to take that home with you as, as one small gift that we could make to you. And before we dive into this letter, let me give you a few basic ideas of how to get the most of it. We'll move through the book of Colossians and we'll be done about the time school lets out. It's true. Uh, we're going to study Colossians and the little letter of Philemon. It was written at the same time. Let me tell you how to get the most out of the book of Colossians as we move through this together. I didn't mean we were going to get out when school's out today. I was referring, just dawned on me why some of you are laughing, okay? I don't intend to preach all spring, don't worry. Uh, first of all, read the book of Colossians. If you have other Bible reading uh, patterns or habits or plans that you're following, that's great. Just mix in the book of Colossians. In your reading, try to read it straight through at least once. It's a short letter, and it was a personal letter written from the Apostle Paul to a young church in the city of Colossae. I'll show you where that is in a moment. But you need to understand these were actual church-going, Jesus-loving people who were gathering for worship, and one day they received a handwritten letter from the Apostle Paul. Read it straight through. You can't do that constantly, so read it also more slowly. Try to read it a chapter at a time. Every chapter will take between four and five minutes. If reading is difficult for you, if, if you just don't have the habit of reading or you have a reading disability, and so many of us do, your smartphone has a free Bible app called YouVersion. It has many good translations. If you look on that, there will be a little button for you to play it. You can put that in your car and enjoy the, word, the book of Colossians on your way to work or on a leisurely drive. However you take it, read it in big gulps, read it in small bites, read the book of Colossians. Secondly, if you're not yet in a small group, it would be an ideal time to join because we're all resetting to study Colossians together. You'll learn a great deal about what it means and how it applies, the questions that other people have about it always enrich my study. One of the bad things about being in my small group is my small group is kind of my sermon lab, and sometimes I really don't know where I'm going with something, and their questions, uh, sometimes their objections, really help me shape it. And that experience where we're learning together what God says, and we hear the difference He's making in other people's lives, that's intended uh, for all of us. That's how I would encourage you to enjoy the book of Colossians. Read ahead, read it slowly, read it quickly, and read it and enjoy it and discuss it with other people. That was all free. I haven't yet started preaching. Everybody doing okay? All right. Let's ask for God's uh, blessing together as we look at His Word. Father, the point of Your Scripture is to point us to Your Son, Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus told us. We don't want to search the Scriptures and miss Him. We want to search the Scriptures in a way that we will know Him as He is, love Him and trust Him and do as He told us in every single way. None of us are going to do that perfectly today. We won't do it perfectly a day in our lives, 
but we can all grow in grace. We can grow more confident in him. We can learn for ourselves that all of these promises are actually true. We can rest in grace. You have so much for us here with all these other voices calling out to us to trust someone else and to trust ourselves. Help us to trust your son, Jesus Christ. In his name I pray, amen. My best friend is a professor of education, and he often tells his young charges who are about to leave the classroom as students and become teachers in a classroom that every student in their room will have a little tiny invisible sign on their forehead that they're hoping the teacher notices that says, don't embarrass me. That's true. I'm not sure that sign ever leaves, frankly. There are times in life where it seems more like a billboard than a small sign on your forehead. But nobody likes to be embarrassed, and everybody, especially when you're starting out in something new, everybody is trying to figure out what normal is so that they can fit in. Everybody on earth wants to be loved and accepted. Even people in pretty radical little subcultures, they may have rejected all the others, but they want to be loved and accepted in that group. Their normal may look nothing like yours, but that they've just chosen a different normal in which to be accepted, in which to thrive, and in which they're really hoping that nobody embarrasses them. I lived through that because, as I've, most of you know, I was raised outside of the United States, and I knew what normal was for a first-grade boy in Mexico, but when my parents moved to Denton, Texas, my second-grade year, moved us into a double-wide trailer in the middle of a field, there was a whole other set of normal that I had to figure out real quick. It didn't start well because where I was growing up in Mexico, sliced lunch meat was kind of a rarity. So when my mother went to the grocery store and bought Oscar Mayer bologna and made me a sandwich, I was so overjoyed by this, I actually opened up my lunchbox and ran around the lunchroom saying, look, guys, bologna. <laughs> that was the first embarrassment of being a uh, kid who looked American but really wasn't. And I found out that day that showing you know, your sandwich is not a normal thing in an American school lunchroom. So it began. Every new group I entered, when I started playing sports, every new sport I played, I tried to keep quiet and look around, look to the people who were ahead of me, who were the stars of the team, to try to figure out from them, what does normal look like? If you're playing football, what are you supposed to do? We scream, we scream, yeah, okay, we scream. The letter of Colossians has that sense to it. Paul had never met the Colossians. See, the Colossians were in a not particularly important city. That's probably why Paul had never gone there himself. He's writing to a group of people he's heard a good report from, a trusted friend and co-worker of Paul's in the gospel. A local guy named Epaphras has given them the good news about Jesus. He has taught them to follow Jesus. And you're going to read here in Colossians chapter 1, they heard it, they believed it, and like the good news of Jesus always does, everywhere it's believed, it made an immediate difference. But Paul didn't know them. Paul had a heart and a calling to the big cities. He knew he was on borrowed time everywhere Paul went. He suffered persecution everywhere he went. It seems like he was one step ahead of the mob. He wrote this letter from prison too. 
He went to prison so often, we're not entirely sure what prison he wrote it from. That's how difficult Paul's life was. That's why he had missed Colossae. If Paul were preaching in America today, he would have been in Manhattan and Los Angeles. He wouldn't have bothered probably with Kansas. He was sitting to the big metropolitan centers, to the nerve centers from which he knew the gospel could and would spread. And it had reached one of those towns, a town of Colossae. Let me tell you where that is, not to bore you with maps and details, but just to give you an orientation that these are real people. They lived 2,000 years ago, but they had the same kinds of pressures and questions about normalcy that we did. Colossae, if you can see Egypt, if you'll go straight north, you'll find the city of Colossae in the country that today we call Turkey. And at the heart of the Colossians' uh, questions, and that's where this letter starts, they're asking themselves as a seventh grader might in their young church, in their young faith, what does the normal Christian life look like? You ever ask yourself that question? You remember when you first started following Jesus and maybe like a very nervous seventh grade Bruce Garner, you're looking nervously around the locker room for cues about how to behave? You're wondering what kind of Bible you should buy? People are standing up during the songs. You don't know if it's okay to sit down. Prayer seems a mystery. Other people can spit out Bible verses very quickly. You don't own a Bible yet. You're not sure how they ever could have figured all that out. Let me reassure you. We all start apart from God. The good news is God came to us and God came for us. And when you hear the saving truth of the good news of the death of Jesus in your place because he had no sins of his own, He died for yours instead, and he emptied the grave on Resurrection Sunday so that you could have eternal life. That simple message, which is the starting point of this first chapter of Colossians, that makes an eternal difference. And you're now in the family. You're not grown up. That's the point of Colossians. He wants them to fully grow to maturity in Christ. He wants them in the beginning to know what normal looks like. So if you just got started, if perhaps you trusted Christ last Sunday, welcome to the family. God loves you with all of his heart, and now he's going to tell you, so that you don't have to copy some false example, he's going to tell you what the normal Christian life looks like. Read with me in Colossians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul wrote these words to this young church in this ancient city. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints, that means set apart for God, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. If you're not familiar with Bible letters, they follow an ancient convention We say their name and put our name at the end. Ancient letters use the name of the letter writer and the person he was writing right up top. You ever have to look through a letter or scan to the bottom of an email because you didn't know for sure who was writing? The ancients knew something about that. They said, here's who I'm talking to and here's who's writing this. They must have been thrilled, this group of new Christians must have been thrilled to get a letter from an apostle of Christ Jesus. That literally means that Paul is identifying himself as someone who was sent by Christ Jesus by the will of God 
Timothy was with him and probably wrote the letter down for Paul as he, as he spoke it. And he is writing, he has great words for them too. He calls them saints in faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Now, here's where he starts. And as we move through epistles, one of my goals is to teach you to study the Bible. It's deep, it's wonderful, it's life-changing, but it's not complicated. Would you please take my word for that? Studying the Bible is not complicated. It consists primarily of asking good questions about what God has told you in writing and then studying carefully and listening for the answer. Here's two simple questions to help you study epistles. First is, what's Paul talking about? In other words, what's the point? What's the subject? Is he correcting them? Is he thanking God for them? Is he telling them how to live, their, live in their marriage? Is he telling them how to raise their kids? Is he telling singles how to be single as a Christian? What's he talking about? Second question, what's he saying about it? Okay, so let's try that together in verse 3. Paul said, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras. That's their guy. Our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. What's Paul talking about? He's thanking God for them. Do you see that in verse 3? We, he says in verse 3, we always thank God for you. He's identified himself saying, yes, I'm talking to you. You may feel out of place. You may have people telling you that you haven't found Christ yet. You may have other religious systems pulling you away from Jesus. Here's what I know you are. You are saints. You are set apart for God, and you are faithful brothers. In other words, good news, you're already in the family. You don't have to earn this. The good news has already been brought faithfully to you by one of your own just a normal Christian man told you the good news about Jesus. You believed it, and some amazing things happened. And in verse 3, he says, every time we think of you, we thank God for you. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. What's the normal Christian life? Verse Four tells me the normal Christian life is two things. It's trusting Jesus and loving others. Paul says every time we think of you, we always thank God for what's happening in your church. We've never met, but I know you. I've heard what happened in Colossae, and you have faith in Christ Jesus, and you have love for all the other Christians. That's the normal Christian life. Whether you've been following Jesus all your life or you've been following Jesus for a week, this is what it boils down to. We are people, according to verse 4, we have faith in Christ Jesus. Every word matters. Jesus is his name. Christ is a title. 
Christ is a Greek word that means the anointed one. In other words, Jesus, who was actually born in Nazareth, is a real person. He was a real human being. He really did die on the cross about 30 years earlier. But he was not only a man. He was the one that God sent for you. That's the good news that was preached to you. And you placed your faith in him. I'm calling it trust because I think for most of us in the 21st century, that conveys much more of what the Christian life is actually like. Let me be very practical. One of the things that really trips Christians and people who think they're Christians up is they have what I call a check-the-box Christianity. In other words, without paying any attention to their personal relationship with Jesus, whether they hear from him and love him, whether they trust him and have loyalty to him, whether they try to do his will instead of their own, because I don't know about you, but I love my own will. I love to call the shots. So do you. You love to call the shots for yourself. The relationship with Jesus begins when, with the announcement that he died for your sins and rose from the grave, not so that you could continue to be in charge, but so that you could be remade and welcomed in the family of God and learn to live as his child. And that takes not a one-time decision where you check a box and you say, oh yeah, I was raised in church, I prayed a prayer once. And people are staking their whole purpose on earth and their whole hope for heaven on basically a checked box that there was a time when they heard a message and they thought it sounded good and maybe they prayed, maybe somebody told them some words to say and now it's all good. Paul and the entire Bible is talking about something bigger and better talking about a life-to-life exchange where he is Lord and Master. We're the disciples. He's calling the shots. He's leading the way and we're following Paul says, I heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and then he said, I heard about something else. I heard of your faith, and verse 4, what does he mention next? The love that you have for who? For all the saints. In other words, for all the other people that have been set apart by God. Okay? Don't get confused by religious language. Saints is a biblical word that means set apart. In other words, saints are people that God calls his own. Have you ever had an instant connection with someone because you discovered that like you, they are also following Jesus? And there's just a quick kinship? That's what Paul's talking about. He's never met them, but he knows they're in God's family because they've believed the good news about Jesus. They've placed their faith in him, and it's showing up because they're loving the family. They're loving their brothers and sisters. And that's really the hallmark. That's how you can tell who really is a Christian and who did more than check a box. Listen to Jesus explain it. John 13, verse 35. Jesus said, By this all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have, what's that? For who? See, it's easy to say you love God and go on doing your own selfish thing without loving anybody else. There's a whole other book in the Bible written about that. It's called 1 John. And it has stuff like this. You can't tell me that you love God whom you've never seen while you hate your brother who's right in front of you. Garner paraphrase. But it's easy to profess an idea of love for God, especially if I get to tell God what love looks like 
And I don't have to deal with you and your stuff, which is constantly in my life. What God does, what the gospel does, is it produces faith and trust in Jesus and love for other people. And I saw a beautiful picture of that just yesterday. We have a young mom in our church who was recently baptized, who along with her new, brand new faith in Jesus, was also given a beautiful little baby daughter who celebrated her first birthday yesterday. And her small group and some other people who aren't really in the group, but they all sit in the same row at church. That was actually the commonality. They sat close to each other. They threw a little party for this mom and this little baby girl. Favorite part of the party. The baby until yesterday at one year of age had never tasted sugar. I strongly recommend those of you with infants do that just for the payoff of giving them a cupcake on their first birthday. It was amazing. She looked up at her mom like, you've been holding out on me. This is fantastic. And our life is now going to be very, very different. And it was great. And we took time to go around the room and talk about how we met this young woman. And here's the point. I counted four generations and three different languages spoken in that room. And what brought people together, what threw that party, was love. Trust and love in Jesus spilled over into practical, helpful, gracious love in that room. This is what Jesus does. This is the normal Christian life. It's not something that you graduate into. It's not something that someday, many years from now, you start doing. No, if you really and truly meet Jesus, you place your faith in him, and what he produces next is love for other people. And Paul says in verse 5 why all that happens. Will you look carefully at the first words of verse 5? Paul says your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for other Christians is produced for one reason. What's he say? Because of hope. There it is, faith, hope, and love. Paul wrote the Corinthians and says there's faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Here he's telling you something slightly different. He says you have a personal loyalty and trust in Jesus, and you have love for one another because that's the connective tissue. That's why I'm encouraging you to read slowly. What frees you to trust Jesus your whole life right up to the moment of death? What frees you and empowers you to love other people sacrificially when you don't have much to give and you'd rather go home and you'd rather call your own shots and you'd rather not get invested and connected is you have a hope that is, here's the interesting phrase, what's it say? Because of the hope that is what? Laid up for you in heaven. What in the world does that mean? See, Paul uses the word hope in two ways. One is the way we use the word hope. So you might ask your son, as I do, did you do well in your chemistry test? And he'll say, I hope so. <laughs> oh, no. Hope means in that way we use it. It's not a settled fact, right? We don't know. This is different. Paul says you have hope laid up for you in heaven. What Paul's trying to tell you here is 
He is thanking God that the gospel is doing what the gospel always does. In other words, the Colossians are now in the normal Christian life, and they have faith in Jesus and love for people because they have hope. And that is not a I hope so thing, the way Paul uses the word here means it's a settled thing. Here's how I know that. He says that this hope is laid up for them in heaven. In other words, hope is stored up. It's waiting for them. You can think about it this way. Christian hope is not an I wish for kind of thing. Christian hope is it's an I'm, it's waiting for me kind of thing. Your hope, who is Jesus Christ himself, every good thing you could have ever wished were true, Every healing, every forgiveness, every grace, every security, every blessing. Paul says it's already waiting for you. It's stored up for you, according to verse 5. You have faith in Christ and you have love for the saints, verse 5, because of the hope laid up for, for you in heaven. What that means is when Christians hope for the best, everything they wish for, they can know is already theirs. Today, I'll, today we're going to have Chris Garrity's funeral service after this, after our worship here together. We're going to say goodbye to a sweet lady named Chris who is Sean Garrity's mom. Maybe you've, you've met Sean. Later this afternoon, I'm going to meet with another family that was long part of our church. Uh, Peggy Friend, Sonny's wife, died last night. She did so after a very long battle with a very cruel disease. After visiting with her for a little while uh, last week, I think I've moved ALS to the top of the list of things I wish and pray and hope nobody ever, ever gets. And I was messaging her daughter this morning, and I looked back on, we don't do much Facebook messaging, she and I, but I looked back to some old messages from maybe a couple years ago. And she had messaged me to ask for prayer because she was hoping for a second better opinion than what it turned out her mother actually had. And I said, well, we'll pray for that. And of course, those prayers in that specific way were unanswered. Here's the point. We prayed for Chris and we prayed for Peggy. And those prayers for healing, for a better diagnosis for relief on this earth, went unanswered. But the very best things both of those women wished for, hoped for, prayed for, they already enjoy it right now. See, when a Christian hopes for what is truly best, he does so in the assurance that he already has it. That's why Paul says, your hope is not on earth. Your hope is laid up for you in heaven. Everything you could ever want, if you truly knew what was best and knew to pray for it, this is what you would pray for. And every time you do pray for it, you can do so knowing that God has already secured it by the cross and grave of his son. That's the good news. And this good news spreads everywhere and makes all the difference. So why is our future so very secure? For two reasons. For what Paul says at the end of the chapter. He says this is all true because of God's grace. Look at verse 6 now. 
I'm sorry, the last half of verse 5. He says, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. This good news about Jesus is true. It's real. It's, a, it's not fiction. It's an actual, personal, historical reality. Paul was an eyewitness to it. So was the Apostle John. The Colossians were not, but the fact that they weren't eyewitnesses to it made it no less real for them. There were all kinds of voices around them in their culture. They were saved out of paganism and strongly influenced by a very strict form of Judaism. In other words, the people who read this letter had all kinds of people telling them, hey, you have Jesus, that's great, you need more. You need to watch out for certain kinds of food, you need to observe certain kinds of days, you need to keep these kinds of rules. In their pagan beliefs, they were also influenced by things like angel worship, we'll read in Colossians chapter 2. In other words, just like our day, there was religious ritualism on one side and personal mysticism on the other. They were being told, sometimes with one voice, very different things. Keep the rules and do well enough, and maybe someday God will accept you. Join our secret society, go through these kinds of rituals, and God will open the doors of heaven up to you. That's every religious offer in the world, whatever they call it, whether then or now. Religion invites you to try harder, work better, do these things, give these things, learn these things, recite these things, keep this diet, and if you do that well enough and long enough, then you'll be okay. The gospel announces is called the gospel because it's good news. It doesn't give good advice. It announces good news makes all the difference in the world that Jesus paid that price and that he makes the difference. And this is all true because of God's grace. You can't possibly earn it. Look at verse 7. Just as you learned it, this good news, you learned it from Epaphras, our, belo our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he made known to us your love in the Spirit. Why is all this happening? Because it's God's grace and because it's all actually, literally true. That's why we're invited to keep our mind focused on Christ. Let me be really practical and speak very directly to what I think is our biggest distraction as American Christians. We're invited to live for the American dream. In other words, that Pleasure, success, achievement is to be found right here. To be very pragmatic, and sometimes even if you're a Christian, to use God to achieve those ends. In other words, not that he's the point, but he's actually an instrument. He's a help in getting you the life you always wanted. Somebody wrote a book a few years ago called Your Best Life Now. I hope this isn't our best life. This life is hard. This life has been ruined by sin. See what it looks like in the real world? Is you wear yourself out and you break your health leaving the, living out the American dream and just about the time you're settled and secure enough to really enjoy it, you know what happens next? You start falling apart. <laughs> and that's, it. that's if life is normal and good and not tragic. Paul has better things for the Colossians in mind. He wants them to know that if I may use a gambling term, I don't gamble, but I love the expression, they're playing with house money. They can't lose. 
Their hope is already settled for them in heaven. That means that if you're really following Jesus, there may be great danger for you on earth, but there's no risk whatsoever. If they kill you as they once killed Paul, all that's going to mean is God is going to use your death to bring you into the eternal life that Jesus died to give you. Can't lose. You've already won. That's the point. Paul says, every time I think of you, I thank God for you because I heard that you actually trusted Jesus. And that bubbled over in love for other Christians, and that's all because you understand that your hope, your fondest dreams, the greatest things you could ever hope for are already stored up for you in heaven. That's all because of God's grace and because it's actually true. That's why he wrote them later in the letter this. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. All your life following Jesus, you're going to have other voices calling out to you, telling you to trust them. The voices of this world, very basic teachings that the world thinks are sophisticated and very, very wise and clever, those things are going to call out to you. And Paul says, don't listen to them. Listen to the things that pertain to Christ and put your hope, set your eyes there. Colossians 3.1 says, if then you have been raised with Christ, in other words, as far as you having eternal life, it's as if you already enjoyed it. You're still living on earth, but as far as God's promise is concerned, it's as if you've already been raised with Christ. Since that's happened, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. What am I trying to tell you, church? When we know that our future's safe, we can trust Jesus fully and love others sacrificially. That's the normal Christian life. It means that in struggles and in fears, with all kinds of things that make you question where Jesus is and whether he is sufficient, you take the next step in love and you trust him. I don't know about you, I'll be really honest right now, sometimes I find it hard to trust Jesus. There have been a few very painful crossroads in my life where I found myself in entirely new situations and I didn't know what normal looked like and I was afraid. I see that in the life of every disciple written about, written about in Scripture. Everybody goes through that. What's the normal Christian life? It's learning to trust Him in that moment. In other words, it's me giving up on myself and trusting Him. That's the struggle. That I want to be the shot caller. I want control. I want income. I want healthy kids. I want happy marriage. I want all of these things that I have created an environment where all these things can be enjoyed. Because does God will those things for his children? Every good thing we have comes from him. But the point of Christian discipleship is learning to trust him and do his will in all of that fear. That's normal. And when I trust him because of the hope I have in him, that bubbles over in love for you and in your love for me. And with all of our idiosyncrasies and limitations and sins against one another, that produces something that no power on earth and no human program can produce, a trust in the Savior and a love for one another because we know our hope is already safe. So let me be very practical. 
If you wrote those two things down, let me give you a moment to reflect. And if you didn't, would you write those two phrases down? Would you write on your notes, trust Jesus, and then a little further down, love others? And here's how we'll close our time together. Take a quiet moment with Jesus and ask him, where do you need to trust him next? Where is it that you want to assert control and you want to get it over with, but you need to trust him instead? That's the vertical dimension. Now let's think horizontal, person to person, in relationships with others. It can be more difficult than our relationship with him. Where does your love for others need to show up? Little clue from what I learned this week. An indication of where my love needs to show up is where my impatience already does. Where I'm impatient and frustrated, irritated. I need to replace that with love for you. Not impatience, not fuming. The good news of the gospel that spreads and grows everywhere, this is what it produces. It's not instant. No personal relationship is. It's gradual. But it comes when you realize your hope in heaven is safe. So you are now able to trust Jesus and love someone else. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so sincerely for loving us in spite of our sin. Thank you that your grace covers all sin, and thank you that it's all true. Help us realize, Lord, with all the needs and pain and discouragement and fear represented in this congregation, that for everyone who has trusted Christ as Savior, their hope is already laid up for them. It's already secure. They don't have to wish for it. They only have to wait for it. I pray, God, that that truth and comfort would be real to everyone here, and if someone does not know you as Savior, that even now as I'm praying, they would turn to you and say to you, Jesus, I'm sorry for my sin. I'll never make it on my own. I'm giving it up on myself, and I'm trusting you. If anybody here needs to have that assurance, I pray that they would turn to you and receive it from you right now, not because they've prayed the right prayer or thought the right thoughts or promised to do better, but because they're willing to surrender and ask you to save them. Thank you, Lord, for uniting us as a family of faith. Thank you for the love that I see in so many relationships here. May that more and more increase as we realize that all risk has been removed and we are free, Lord, to trust you totally and love each other boldly. In Jesus' name, amen.